It's um, well known to all of us. I mean, you would have had to be in a different planet altogether to uh, not know about the Scottish referendum this week. And uh, But the voting paper in particular for that referendum included the question, should Scotland become an independent nation, or words to that effect. And there were two boxes that the Scottish people could tick. They were yes and no. There was not a box available for perhaps or a box for under certain circumstances. That was left for the political argument. And it's probably just as well there weren't those boxes. Uh, then, nonetheless, grey areas... Grey areas can be terribly attractive in politics, in business, or even in building work we commission on our house. Grey areas can be terribly useful because they give us what is often known as wriggle room. And as a result of the Scottish people's vote and resultant changes to the constitution that appear likely, it would appear that wriggling has already begun in earnest and much of it possibly to the tune of a Highland Reel, I don't know. Now, God's relationship with the people of Israel, of course, resulted in a yes on both sides. You are my people, and you are our God. They had set off together, of course, uh, from Egypt. And that type of commitment that they showed in setting off together uh, is perhaps rather like being married. There is a yes on both sides, of course, but an awful lot of wriggle room and detail to sort out in the years to come. Times of testing, we might call them. We learn about our marriage partners as we go along, how they respond at times of family tension, uh, how they respond in material hardship, illness, in anger or disappointment, as well as times of joy. Through those times, we learn about each other's characters and ultimately how much we trust the other person. Often it might boil down to that because it's in testing times where we find out whether our yes really means yes at all times and in any situation as the marriage service has it in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer and so it is in the story of the people of Israel as they follow their leader Moses under God's guidance towards the land that God has promised them. It's a long journey, so the tests that they face are many and varied. And there are fallings out, startings again, feelings of resentment, times of giving and receiving love, as well as praise to God. What I'm just going to do to begin with is very quickly recap. That was quite a long reading and we edited quite a lot of it out. So I just want to very, very quickly, in two short sentences really, just give you a recap on the story. It's fairly straightforward. A month into their journey from Egypt at the desert of Sin, the people are hungry and thirsty and they began to have a go at their leaders, Moses and Aaron. Have you really brought us here to starve to death? Well, the Lord hears them and promises a type of bread as nourishment, but it comes with a test of obedience to collect the bread whilst observing the Sabbath. Now, this bread from heaven is a sign of God alongside them, God's ongoing provision. Moses and Aaron tell them there'll be meat too, quail, in the evening. 
but instructions about the bread's immediate consumption and gathering early for the Sabbath aren't heeded, and God condemns their lack of obedience. Nonetheless, the manna from heaven keeps coming for 40 years indeed, and quantities, small quantities, are stored in a jar as a long-lasting symbol of how God provided for their needs. Well, that's the very broad-brush summary of our passage today. And we're going to look at it from two main points of view. Firstly, from the people's point of view and their complaints, and then from God's point of view and the ways in which he provides. And in both cases, I'm going to explore with you what we learn about both parties and how conclude then by looking at how their relationship echoes and is resolved in God's greater plan for all people, including those of us today. Indeed, that what happened thousands of years ago finds an echo in God's spiritual provision through Jesus Christ for you and I today. So first, we're going to look at the people's rebellion, then response, then finally its resolution. So beginning with rebellion. Well, when things go massively wrong, who do we tend to blame? Well, we tend to blame our leaders, don't we? Those in authority over us, whether that's Fulham sacking their manager after a dreadful start to the season, as happened this week, or on a rather more important level. I mean, had that independence vote been lost, some say that David Cameron was preparing to take the flak and to resign. Or at a more mundane level, when our virgin train is cancelled, Richard Branson's intray gets a little bit fuller. Leaders are always the target for our dissatisfaction. And the people of Israel just into their journey are pretty dissatisfied. Blimey, we'd be better off where we were. There was always a pot of meat to eat. Here there's nothing. We're going to starve. Moses points out to them, though, that they're picking on the wrong target. It's not he who can drum up the next meal, who is the provider, but the Lord. So don't put your trust in me, but in him. If you want to complain, it's only him that can make a difference. In that moment and in the whole story of Moses, he always points to God. He may be the leader in the sense of being the one who stands on their behalf before God, but it is God who is really leading the people on. He alone has the power. Moses can only pray for it or invoke it. And we'll remind ourselves later that their complaining, although it's wrongly directed, is heard by God. When we're angry or frustrated or hungry, we often rebel against the instructions that our leaders give us. And so the people of Israel show their dissent by ignoring Moses and God's commandments to them. Things like storing manna overnight until it's maggot infested. Or seeking to collect manna against instructions on the seventh day, despite the clear advice that they'd get two days supply on the sixth. It's easy to imagine them muttering as they did that. Well, if Moses thinks we're going to let good food go to waste, then he's got another thing coming. Or, I reckon he's lost his way already. What do you think? It's a kind of niggly behavior that's likely to chip away the, the foundations of any relationship in family life, in partnership, 
or indeed with God. Acts of dissent or disobedience that are designed to undermine the other. But of course their muttering and their complaining is also founded on a real concern. They are short of things to eat and indeed later on in uh, the passage, uh, which we didn't have time to read in chapter 17, 1 to 7, we find out they complain about the lack of water to drink. And again, their complaints are directed towards Moses. The Lord's power is invoked and by the striking of the rock at Horeb, water springs forth for them. The place where the water is provided was named Massa and Meribah because the people quarreled and detested the Lord, saying their words, is the Lord among us or not? And that's what's behind their complaining, their testing, their dissent and petty rebellion. Are you with us, Lord, or not? Are we out here on our own? Are we really the people of your blessing and protection or not? Well, we see lots of examples as we go through Exodus of unequivocal evidence that God did bless them. And in a moment, we'll turn to how God responds. But for a moment, I just want to take a moment out of our story to consider the question that they raise. Is the Lord among us or not? And I want to plant the seed in us this morning that far from being a question we should be fearful of asking ourselves, is the Lord among us or not? It's a natural question for all of us to ask in various ways and at various times. A journey of faith, whether we're a month in or many years into the journey or we haven't even started yet, always raises moments of questioning, reflection and doubt. Is God with me in a way that I can understand? If I pray, does he listen? If I suffer, is he compassionate? If I fall, will he pick me up? These are natural questions. They are also the questions that have been asked by faithful people throughout history. Look at the Psalms. Psalm 10. Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 58, do you judge rightly among men? And there are countless others, of course. Relationships always involve finding more out about each other. For God and the people of Israel, the crucible of testing is in the desert. For us, the crucible might be a time of hardship, of bereavement, and of doubt. And we must not, I think, be afraid of asking whether the Lord is with us at those times. Exodus shows us that the people of Israel repeatedly receive the answer, yes. Yet it is not always an answer that they hear, accept, or that removes their skepticism. Yet God's response is evidenced in events that unfold. And it's to that response that we'll now turn. So we look at the second, if you like, perspective on our passage. Not that of the people this time, but that of God. And how he shapes his people 
to his response and events. And I think that there are four features of God's response in this passage which I'd like to draw out for us this morning. Each of them meets one of the people's needs, but importantly reveals something of God's long-term character. And through that character, he's trying to shape the people of Israel as a people for himself. So I'll point to them very briefly in turn. Four characteristics of God shown up. First, God shows himself to be a listening God. Four times in our text, God is described as having heard the people directly or through Moses. Second, God provides for their needs, not through food parcels, but through his own natural creations. For food in bread, perhaps not frosties, but some sort of type of honeydew, and meat in quail and in water. So God listens, God provides. God encourages fairness, that the people are to take what they need and no more. An omer, perhaps a small bundle, for each person in the tent. And he who gathered much, we're told, did not have too much. And he who gathered little, did not have too little, we're told. I'm often reminded of that as I go into the co-op and end up buying three loaves for the for one pound, where I only really need one. And how wasteful we are uh, with our resources through these type of things. So God seeks fairness, equity. And God seeks their obedience, finally, to this rule and to others. Observing the Sabbath, the days of rest, the, 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 the traditional from the time of creation. Because God knows other tests of obedience lie ahead. And part of shaping the people is his asking of them, are you also with me? Not just, is God with them? But are they with God? Well, I think those are four ways in which God reveals his character. And the people of Israel at the time may be a bit blind to God revealing himself in this way, but Moses is not. In verse 7 to 8, he says to paraphrase, When you receive bread in the morning and meat in the evening, you will know it was the Lord, because he's heard your complaining. Moses is encouraging them to see God's fingerprints on this act of provision through nature so that they can realize that God is indeed with them. I wonder if you've ever looked back on your life, the way it's played out, or that of your family, and looked for God's fingerprints in your story. Time when a Prayer has been responded to, maybe in a way you'd hoped, maybe in some other way, that over time you've come to accept or understand. I had that opportunity last week when I spoke to the men's breakfast meeting about my journey of faith and God's fingerprints as different parts of my life, of times of development and of loss, of sadness and fulfillment. And I suppose we'll all get a bit of a chance to do that in the telling the story course that Philip mentioned in October, it'll encourage all of us to look back on our lives, reflect on how God has been at work in them, and find ways of sharing that with others. It might be a time that you felt God might have listened to a prayer and responded to you. Or simply the way that you and your family have been provided for over the years. 
Times you felt prompted to share in giving with what you have with others. Or times you followed a particular course at work or at home, even an ethical decision, because it fitted with your understanding of the Christian faith. Or it might be a time that you have felt abandoned and have cried out, are you with me, Lord, or not? And received an answer, maybe not immediately, but over time that you've come to recognize as a fingerprint. As Moses says, and then you will see it was the Lord. I want to move things towards a conclusion now by considering how those two aspects of rebellion and God's restoration of us, his response to us, are brought together in Jesus Christ. You see, if we fast forward a few thousand years to the present day, the world that we're living in, I think we see that rebellions were not restricted to the desert, but indeed they're commonplace. In society at large, particularly in the West, we've turned our backs on the concept of a sovereign God revealed in Jesus Christ. Our faith is largely placed in consumerism, celebrity and science. In other parts of the world, where shortage, deprivation and struggle are the norm, the search for God is more earnest. And even amongst us Christians, those of us that go under that name, our rebellion remains, and it's still of the heart. Times when we hide from God, when we lock him away, when we bring him out on those special occasions only, or do the opposite of what we know he'd want. That's why every service here begins with a confession. So rebellion continues. Yet God continues also to respond in listening, in providing, in promoting justice, in claiming obedience, in leaving fingerprints on our lives. Last week, Philip spoke of two things. Hesed, God's unfailing love, and that God always has plans that transcend our very limited vision of him. Those things, that love, those great plans, were brought together in Jesus Christ. Because God has a new type of bread to provide, and a new type of water for us to drink. Jesus pointed to that. Let me read a short extract from John's Gospel. So the disciples said to Jesus, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's unfailing love and his provision for us, his fingerprints, are found in Jesus Christ, who takes our rebellion and restores us, who takes our complaining and gives us hope. You see, God has listened. He knows that our rebellion and our suffering are aspects of who we are as human beings. God has provided a son, a saviour, who brings forgiveness and hope as features of God's hesed, his unfailing love. God promotes justice and has special compassion for those who have not been blessed in this earthly life. And God leads and seeks our obedient following as a shepherd towards his sheep, we too are brought to a place of renewal and refreshment, a land promised, and a land he places in our reach through Jesus Christ. Amen.